0: Talking benefits, 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 talking, 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 benefits. You're listening to Talking Benefits, the podcast brought to you by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. Every month we dive into retirement, health care, hot topics and trends, and whatever else the benefits industry throws at us. I'm Justin Held.
1: I'm Julie Stick. I'm Ann Patterson. Let's talk benefits.
0: So hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's episode of the Talking Benefits podcast. This month, we are going to discuss paternity leave, taking a deeper dive into working families and the balance of advancing your career and providing caregiving to your children. I'm joined by Dr. Brad Harrington, who is a professor and researcher on fatherhood, as well as the director of the Boston College Center for Work and Family. Thank you for joining us today and uh, providing us with some insights.
1: Happy to be here, Justin. Thank you.
0: So could you tell us a little bit uh, about yourself and uh, your research efforts, uh, specifically your work with the Center for Work and Family?
1: Sure. Just by way of my own background, before I went into academia, I spent 20 years in the high technology space and I was uh, executive with uh, Hewlett Packard from 1980 to 2000. And during that time, I I worked in a number of of global roles and also spent some time in Europe. And at the same time, toward the end of my career with HB, we had three children, five, three, and newborn. So um, I kind of, as much as I thought about these issues. I also live these issues. And that's Mm -hmm. one of the things that got me so interested in this field. I've been with Boston College since since 2000. So this is my 22nd year. The Center for Work and Family has existed for about 32 years. And it was set up really to be a bridge between academic research and corporate practice, specifically around the issues of workforce and work family. So we are supported financially uh, and in other ways by about 50 of the leading employers in the United States in a whole broad range of industries investment banking, pharmaceuticals, consulting and professional services, high technology, defense, um, hospitality, and so forth. So we've got a very broad range of people, mostly large employers, mostly ones that are household names, and they engage with us in order to either take part in our research or to just be part of our education and, and roundtable sessions to really learn more about uh, what's going on in the field of research and also what their, some of their competitors and peers are doing in terms of trying to advance the case for, for work life and well-being and, and career development amongst their employees.
0: So to get us started here, uh, could you provide us with sort of the uh, current state of paternity and a paternity leave in the U.S.?
1: Sure. I mean, I probably should have added that as far as fatherhood research, and I'll get right into the uh, paternity leave question you have, we began that effort about 12 years ago. And as somebody who is leading an organization that was focused on this issue, I was struck always by how little men and fathers were part of the conversation. <laughs> it seemed like when it came to work family uh there were mothers and there was this other guy over there and uh, fathers were very much an afterthought. So we began our research in 2010 on fathers and we've been doing research and publications every year or so since that began. The latest study we did was actually on paternity and parental leave. And in this instance, we we looked at how parental leave was going since a number of companies had expanded paid leave uh, for parents. And they did so on a gender equitable basis. Six years ago, seven years ago, if you asked a father, Do you have paternity leave? And if so, how much? If the answer was yes, it was two to three days. And even women, as you you know, don't benefit from lots of paid leave time in the United States. We're the only really developed country in the world that doesn't have a national policy on paid leave for moms. And the vast majority of developed countries also have paid leave for dads as well. The United States has always been averse to that. And it puts us really as an outlier amongst virtually all the countries in the world, but especially amongst those countries that we compete. So what we decided to do when in 2014, we we asked employers if we could survey their dads about what their attitudes would be about taking paternity leave, understanding at the time it was a somewhat of a foreign concept for most of them. And at that time, we really got a strong message that dads thought, I should be entitled to some leave. And if I was offered it, I, w- I would be interested in taking it. Fast forward to 2020 or so. And by that time, I would say at least half of our 50 member companies had done something on Mm -hmm. expanding paid parental leave and offering it for both mothers and fathers. So when we did this study, we looked at both mothers and fathers and what their response was to paid parental leave. But I think the real interest was less in mothers because the assumption was, They've always had to take it. Now they're getting paid for it. So there's no reason on earth they wouldn't be happy uh, with this arrangement. But it was more interesting because there was a kind of a conventional wisdom that you can offer dads parental leave and they won't take it. So we embarked on that study. And these were all with corporate employers who had expanded leave somewhere to between six and 16 weeks. As I said before, we have no national policy on paid parental leave, and especially not not for dads at this stage of the game. But a number of states and municipalities, I think we're up to about 10 states now out of 50 that have, you know, offered some kind of state funded program. Oftentimes the funding, by the way, comes from employees themselves through some kind of a very small tax, but they offer some kind of funding. And the one thing that we've seen is the uptake on those programs isn't as great as it was with the programs that we looked at. And the difference primarily was that a lot of states only offer a certain percent of income and it's up to a certain cap. So a lot of fathers, especially those who are well paid, are really taking a significant cut in pay. When they take paternity leave in the organizations we studied, which were all members of our centers roundtable, they all offered a hundred percent pay. And if you want to see whether or not dads will take leave, offer them a hundred percent pay and you'll get your answer because <laughs> they will.
0: Yeah. There's, there's a utilization right there. So Definitely. over the past decade or so, we've been tracking just from an employer perspective, do you offer maternity versus paternity? And there is still a decent gap there, but that gap has been slowly closing over that past decade. So
1: yeah. One thing, Justin, that, that I think is interesting is for those companies, for example, that are saying, yeah, we offer our moms 10 weeks. We offer our dads two weeks. There have been Mm -hmm. a number of legal challenges to that in recent Mm -hmm. years. And the fathers say, (laughs) you can't discriminate against me. And beyond the birth and recovery period, when it comes to bonding, I deserve as much leave as my wife does. Um, And so there is, there's a lot of legal cases that have taken, you know, taken uh, people's attention in terms of saying, you know, men can't be discriminated against in this, in this area.
0: So as part of your sort of overall research, uh, your group created a report uh, titled The New Dad, uh, The Career Caregiving Conflict, and that report explored the roles of fathers in the workplace and in the home, and it begins with a distinction of two questions. The first is, how do you believe caregiving should be divided between you and your partner? And the second question is, how is caregiving actually divided uh, between you and your partner? Can you discuss this distinction and uh, what that report found specifically?
1: You know, from our earlier studies on fatherhood, one of the things we got a sense of from fathers was this sense that a lot of them are conflicted, that they have good ambition and good aims in terms of being a shared caregiver, but they don't always live up to those aims. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just one example from earlier studies was that we asked dads, would you like a job with greater responsibility? And the answer was yes. Would you like a job in senior management? The answer was yes. And then the third question would be like, would you like more time with your children? And the answer was yes. And what we could garner from this is, you know, they, you know, as they used to say that women want it all, well, this was the case where men want it all. They wanted to spend more time with their children, but they also wanted to stick on these jobs with greater and greater responsibility. And so over the years, one of the ways we've tested how that plays out is we've asked those two questions that you just mentioned, Justin, and the, the stats have changed a little bit just over the last 10 years on the answer to these questions, only because I think things are really in the in the course of changing. But generally speaking, somewhere between two thirds and 70% of men say on, these, on the question of how should it be divided, they say it should be 50-50. And I'd like to be an equal partner with my wife. However, you can take that number and divide it in half down to about 35%. And when we say, how is it divided? 35% of them say it is egalitarian and equal. And the other 35% says she does more than I do. So what we saw there was a real gap between men's aspirations to be shared caregivers and the reality uh, that they're able to actualize. So what we've done from that is to try to say, well, what what is going on there? And how can we, in effect, profile these three groups of men? One group being traditional dads who say, she should do more than I do, and she does. The second group being the egalitarian fathers who say, it should be 50-50, and it is. And then this third group, a significant group, that says, it should be 50-50, but she does more than I do. Mm -hmm. Those are the guys we call the conflicted fathers.
0: Could you describe some deeper characteristics of those groups and some of the some of the takeaways that you found with those groups?
1: Yeah, some of them aren't too surprising. Like for example, the traditional fathers typically they have a wife who either works part time or is full time at home. So when you say traditional, whether that's been agreed upon by the spouses or not, we're not sure. But what we do know is the father is carrying the responsibility for the overwhelming majority of, of income. And so when they're in a traditional relationship, oftentimes, when one of them has to accommodate the family needs, you know, they say, well, the, the wife will step back. And that's what you would consider to be a traditional relationship. The inverse of that, of course, would be a stay-at-home dad, uh, where the dad stays at home full-time, but that's still an extremely small percentage of Mm stay-at-home parents these days. The second group, egalitarian, were the most likely ones to have a full-time working spouse. And they were also the ones where their income versus their their spouse or their partner tended to be uh, lower than, say, the traditional fathers. The traditional dads earned virtually always, they earned more than their spouse did. And in the case of the egalitarian fathers, it was much more equitable. The conflicted fathers, I guess the best way to really characterize them is not so much in terms of income or, or responsibilities, but what... What was interesting is when we did, we did a lot of other measures beyond just, you know, who does what. And we looked at things like, you know, how fulfilled are you in the workplace? How much do you feel connected to your work group? Do you feel, you know, frustrated or conflicted about work-family balance? Do you wish you could spend more time with your children? And we measured their satisfaction and fulfillment levels on that and many other characteristics. Um, And what was interesting is the conflicted fathers scored lower than the egalitarian fathers and the traditional Mm -hmm. fathers in every single Measure of life, life and work satisfaction. So, in addition to being in a state of ambivalence between what I should do and what I do do, in addition to that, it seemed to have at least a correlation of very negative feelings about both their mm-hmm. work and their family life uh, when compared to the other two groups of men.
0: You can't win, huh? <laughs> well,
1: the thing is, Justin, if you're a conflicted father, you can't win. So, one of our mm-hmm. pieces of advice is. If you and your wife agree that you should be traditional, be traditional. If you and your Mm. wife agree you should be egalitarian, be egalitarian. But don't don't stay stuck in the middle because Mm. that doesn't tend to yield very positive outcomes for you nor for your spouse or partner.
0: Digging deeper into that study again, it also examined a number of other factors that Mm. may impact attitudes in this area. Some of those include income level, the actual generation of the worker, and a number of other uh, spousal characteristics that you had mentioned. Um, any other sort of key takeaways when taking a deep dive into those factors?
1: I think one is the generational issue. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk about generational diversity and five generations in the workplace, and all this kind of thing. And we've done some studies just on generational issues, that not just about moms and dads. Mm-hmm. And I have a tendency to sort of downplay some of that stuff. I think it's overplayed that, oh, if I was born in 1995 and you were born in 1997, we, we see the world completely differently. For
0: sure. So,
1: so I downplay some of that, but I think a lot of people believe when it comes to this idea of egalitarian couples, the old dads are going to be old school and the young dads are going to be new school and there's going to be huge differences between the generations. So we did a study where we looked at the baby boomers, the Gen X and the Generation Y or millennials. Mm-hmm. And we found that there were differences and millennials were slightly more likely to be more involved in an egalitarian relationship than was the case with baby boomers. And obviously we understand why, because women are doing much, much better in the workplace generally these days in terms of their, <laughs> their earnings level and the levels of responsibility their jobs contain. But while we saw differences, they weren't as drastic as people think they were. I think that you know there is a, a gradual movement toward more egalitarianism, but but it's it's a kind of a slow thing that's happening. And there are still a significant number of couples in the United States that value having one parent at home with the children, especially
0: when they're young. So in those cases, that turns into a more what we would think of as a more traditional uh, kind of arrangement. Mm -hmm. So here at the foundation, I'm sort of the research guru. I'm the one who uh, surveys our membership about benefit trends. And recently, the past couple years, we've uh, taken a lot of efforts into the area of sort of tracking these trends, uh, pre COVID-19 and post COVID-19. Is that something that you've done or any sort of trends that you've noticed in that area?
1: We've been watching it, but haven't actually collected data about, you know, about like hard numbers about what's happened during COVID. But we have mm-hmm. colleagues at uh, a number of universities. So a couple of guys that we've worked with pretty closely, Richard Pets from Ball State and Dan mm-hmm. Carlson from the University of Utah, they've done studies where they measured what was going on right before COVID. They just happened to to take that measure. Then a few months after COVID, the shutdowns began, and then nearly a year later, and what was going on. And I think I can summarize that in two ways. It seemed like When COVID began in that first month or two, and, you know, and kids were sent home from school, obviously, which was, you know, people were sent home from work, but sometimes they forget. Yeah. In addition, kids were home from school. So it wasn't just working from home. It was working in daycare and homeschooling and all that other stuff that that went with that. Uh, In the early months, it seemed like the fathers stepped up and they, you know, came to, you know, especially if they hadn't had parental leave or something, they came to realize how much is involved with taking care of kids on a, full, on a full-time basis. And so men tended to step up and increase their participation rate in caregiving and, and, and less so in homeschooling. But as the thing wore on, I think men and women started to slip back more in traditionally mm-hmm. gender roles and the way you can really see that is you started to hear a lot about women women exiting the workforce or reducing their hours to part time and what happened and what our fear is is that that has set back the whole sort of gender equality movement by you know a decade or something like that right. because of the fact that during that period of time so many women were really trying to bear the majority responsibility for caregiving especially with kids but also Things like elder caregiving as well.
0: Right. Did your uh, organization or any other of your partner organizations do any uh, research into the area of same-sex uh, couples in this area? We try to do our surveys with corporations. For whatever reason,
1: there's a relatively small percentage of people who self-identify as being in same-sex relationships. Mm-hmm. The most recent data point we had on that was the parental leave study, and one of the things was the parental leave study was done with people who had just had a child and had returned to work within the past year. So these, by the most for the most part, were very for, were pretty young people. You know, somewhere between you know, average ages were probably between like twenty seven and thirty two, and one of the things I think is that. Same-sex couples have more of a likelihood, I think, to have children a little later on Mm -hmm. than heterosexual couples do. And it could be that people have a reluctance to self-identify. But I think just as likely, if not more likely, is that some of these people um, who participated in the study were very young and maybe there weren't a lot of same-sex couples that were involved in in that. As I said, the parental leave, is expanded parental leave, has only been around for a few years. So we didn't have a long history really to draw from there what we do know from the research that has been done is that some of the imbalance that occurs between men and women when you're in a heterosexual uh, partnership are less than than they are when you're in a same-sex relationship because you know there there are less um or I should say there are fewer preconceived notions of who's going to do what based on gender, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the the sense you get, and this is true even in heterosexual couples, is the more people talk through and think through and negotiate who's going to do what, the better. That's true of heterosexual couples as well. But when you're in a same-sex couple, it's probably more likely that those conversations have to take place because there's no preconceived assumptions. We're publishing a paper in the fall on um, the issues for gay, lesbian, transgender employees, and for those parents in the world. Place And then we are pretty sure that later this year, we're going to embark on a study just focused on same sex couples, because it is a gap in our research. And, and we
0: know that's an unfortunate gap. That's a trend that everyone is struggling with is trying to trying to capture useful data from a, from a population of that size, which may not be self identifying at, right. at the point of uh, research. So yeah, yeah.
1: Where there's lacking leave for men, if you're in a couple with and there's two men there, if those if neither of them are entitled to any form of paternity leave, um, you know, then then they're out they're out of luck. You know, yeah. I mean, most women in in corporations get some form of leave at at the very least for birth and recovery. But, but oftentimes a little bit more than that. But uh, if your company doesn't support leave for men or doesn't, you know, do much about adoptive parents, which mm-hmm. is the case in, in, in many um, same-size couples, then you're really out of luck on, the front, on that front. Uh, so Great. we really do think that's a pressing need and we're going to try to address it
0: later this year. Great. So just any sort of big picture takeaways, action steps, recommendations, sort of how to reduce this, the conflict of career advancement and fatherhood, particularly from a employer perspective.
1: When we did the parental leave study, one thing was interesting. And we we said, like, if you didn't take or if you had resistance to taking leave, what was the major reason why? Mm -hmm. And for men, the number one reason why was I thought it would delay my career advancement. Forty six percent of the men said that. But fifty six percent of the women said the same thing. So. Even though we think of it as, well, men will be penalized because they take this leave, women have been penalized forever because they take leaves. They've had interrupted (laughs) career paths for a very long time. So I think the more that organizations can appreciate the differences between men and women in terms of their attitudes about work and family, the differences are not as great as they once were. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at the concerns people have, when you look at the the struggles that they have, you know, you see that they're coming closer and closer together. And the truth of the matter is almost every study I've seen says that men experience more stress from work family conflict than women do. And you say, Mm -hmm. well, how is that possible given women do so much more at home? Well, because men are absent from the home more often and men work longer hours typically and people, you know, and men, men feel like, Oh, my family is more dependent on my income to support the family. And so I think even though they're not always acting on it, I think the stress and and the struggle that they feel is every bit as real for them as stress and struggle that women feel. So I think anything organizations can do to encourage men to take advantage of policies that are so-called family-friendly policies, like parental leave or flexible work arrangements or work hybrid or remote or anything like that, um, and the more that men can feel that they're legitimate in exercising those uh, options. um, And that means that, you know, not just that they feel like it, but that their colleagues support it, to their supervisors support it, to senior management talk about it. The more of that that goes on, I think the more likely it is that we'll do good things for men on the home front in terms of helping them be more well-rounded individuals. And at the same time, we'll be doing good things for women because when women feel supported by their spouse, you know, and they feel like their spouse is going to pick up half the load, then their options become much greater in terms of their own career advancement. And obviously, most organizations, I'm sure you work with, Justin, are very interested in women's advancement programs. So I always tell say, you know, if you're interested in women's advancement, you better be supportive of men being active, hands-on caregivers as well. Because if you're not, then you're talking out of two sides of your mouth. Agreed.
0: As someone who uh, who wrote these interview questions while watching my uh, two daughters, I, uh, <laughs> I echo all of all of those sentiments. So, so uh, just to close this off, for those listeners who want to do sort of a deeper dive into these topics, um, where can people find your work specifically?
1: Yeah, so our work is at our website. It's the Boston College Center for Work and Family. www.bc as in Boston College.edu slash cwf
0: fantastic and we'll be sure to put a link to that information in the show notes and uh that'll wrap up this episode uh we wanted to thank you for being on the show dr harrington
1: yeah my pleasure look justin thank you
0: and we will be back in your podcast feed soon if you like what you hear please rate us on itunes it helps others find the podcast and subscribe to the show in your podcast app so that our episodes will automatically appear on your mobile device Talking Benefits is a production of the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, the largest educational association for those working in the benefits industry. If you're into benefits, check out all that the International Foundation has to offer at ifebp.org. Our show is hosted by Julie Stick, Ann Patterson, and me, Justin Held, produced by Stacy Van Alstyne and edited by Amanda Gilsmer. Today's program is copyrighted in 2022 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans, all rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel.
1: All right, that sounded great. I got to say, though, that your office chair would make the
0: perfect sound effect for like a creaky door (laughs) in a haunted house.
1: Did that come through a lot? because I try not to move too much once I realize
0: a couple of times.
1: I'm going to get rid of this chair.